This is the third episode of the hashtag LoveOzwaye podcast. Welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. I'm Brayden. With Ready for This currently airing on ABC3, this was an opportune moment to promote the show. Because, now, get ready for this, it is Australia's first Indigenous teen drama. More importantly, it's a chance to explore stories about Aboriginal young adults and support the reading and publishing of diverse content. In addition to Joanna Werner, the executive producer of Ready For This, I have invited Indigenous writers Jane Harrison and Jared Thomas to the podcast to discuss their books, Becoming Kiralee Lewis and Calypso Summer, respectively. Jane and Jared are both acclaimed playwrights, and their novels are published by Magabala Books, available now. So first, Joanna Werner is an Emmy-nominated AFI and Logie award-winning television producer. Gosh, I'm really interviewing someone like this. Who would be best known for the critically acclaimed and groundbreaking teen drama Dance Academy. Joanna established Warner Film Productions in 2008, following years producing live-action children's and teen television series. Warner Film Productions' first series was Dance Academy, and now they are back on ABC3 with Ready For This. Joanna has taken some time out from a hectic schedule to talk about Ready For This, and more importantly, about diversity in the content that modern teenagers consume. I'm sure you're quite busy with the pre-production on the Dance Academy film. I'm actually shooting a political thriller at the moment, but yeah, we haven't got all the financing firmed for the Dance Academy movie, but we've got our fingers crossed. I hope so. Very close. (laughs) I hope you get that as well. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people are excited for that film to come out. Oh yeah, I think there'll be people that are excited all around the world. Yeah. I mean, especially with um, the Nowhere Boys film coming out. Yeah, absolutely. But how did the collaboration between Werner Film Productions your company and Blackfellow Films come about to create and then bring Ready For This to ABC3? Well, one of the principals at Blackfellow Films, Darren Dale, and I um, became good friends. I think we initially met at the Adelaide Film Festival and over drinks we talked about how fantastic it would be to work together and then we really just decided that we would would try to get, get a show to happen and we'd both just won Logies, which was good timing for Dance Academy and for Redfern Now and we thought it was great timing to go to the ABC with our pitch for a concept which was based on reality um, where there are these hostels where indigenous kids come to live when they have to move away from home so in particular there was one in the 80s where a whole heap of really famous people who went on to big careers like Christine Arnoux lived whilst they were studying and um, and just had such amazing adventures during their time living together. I must say I think Christine Arnoux might be having a ball on the show. Absolutely oh we yeah. we always wanted to um, to cast Christine in this role and I think we even came up with the idea of the role based around her and so we were so <laughs> delighted to get her and just think she's fantastic in it. That's great. And um, we desperately want to get a second series so we can get her singing more. Oh yeah, I hope so too. So the show is about five teenagers chasing their dreams but it also touches on themes of displacement and, and loneliness in their pursuit of excellence. Can you speak about how you came to settle in that storyline? I, I guess you kind of did it then but in more in terms of the Indigenous culture, especially with that inner city school setting that you have? Yeah, well, we wanted to to really have a universal storyline, coming-of-age storyline, about what it is to chase your dreams, about the sacrifices that you have to make, like moving away from home, away from your family at a young age, and about the, you know, the really intense hard work that it takes to chase your dreams. And it also, I guess, to comment on the fact that there are a lot of kids from the country in general, but a lot of Indigenous kids need who, who need to move away from home to take up the likes of scholarships and things like that because there might not be 
be available in their their home communities mm-hmm. to the sort of you know level of that, that they are in the capital city. Yes. So yeah, we thought it was both universal story of coming of age, but also want it to be specific to an Indigenous teenage coming of age. Yeah, I think you really nailed that. Ah, oh, fantastic! Thank yeah. you. And and leading on from that, it's Australia's first Indigenous teen drama. So is there a bit of excitement, but also frustration that we're only just getting there in the year 2015? Uh, absolutely. I think that um, sometimes it's the obvious ideas that everybody says, I can't believe that hasn't been done before. They are the best. I mean, we actually found that on Dance Academy mm. when the show first came out. People said, I can't believe there hasn't been a show about this already. And we were just very lucky that there hadn't been. And we got in first and, and it was fantastic. And I guess the same case here. It, it's unbelievable that there hasn't been a, a a teenage drama which is all based around Indigenous teens. There certainly have been other kids shows that have had really great teen characters and there was um, uh, a great children's characters but for a teen a teen audience and for a teen series this is the first one that we, we believe and absolutely there's frustration that it hasn't come before but we're also just delighted that we could get in there and do it now. Yeah, that's great. Dance Academy was your first series, obviously, and it broke a lot of new ground in terms of its diverse cast and storylines. Yeah. In particular, the story arc of Sam Lieberman, who was played by Tom Green, which I just saw recently in Grant Clooner's Down River at the Melbourne International Film Festival, and he was excellent oh, in that. Oh, good. He's a very talented young actor. He is. So Sam in Dance Academy, he struggled with his sexuality and then came out as gay over the course of the series. Why is it important that we tell these stories celebrating, normalising and exploring diversity in all its shapes and forms? Just just so incredibly important particularly for a teen audience. Drama is about reflecting life and I think the best dramas are when you see stories that you understand and comprehend and you're able to see your life reflected and that just has to cover all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of people and all sorts of sexuality. It, it you know, To me it seems incomprehensible that you wouldn't cover those sorts of storylines in a teen coming of age drama. Mm. Now Dance Academy also had a series of novelizations written by the likes of Sebastian Scott and Rachel Elliott and also Penny Rusin. Well, ready for this, get that same novel treatment? Oh, we hope so. Yeah, very much hope so. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, is that on the hope that you get a second season? Yeah, we really hope that we get a second season. So we really hope that this season strikes a chord, that the audience love it, that they keep, you know, that we keep get, the audience keeps getting bigger every week and they keep tuning in. Um, and based on that, we really hope that we get the, the second season because I want to know what happens with these characters. We've finished them at the end of year 10. I want to see them come back for year 11 and year 12 and know what they go on to do. Do you have like a fully realised plan of what you hope to hear in those seasons if you do get them? We certainly ha- we haven't fleshed everything out, but we have a strong idea of what we'd like to do, yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, what has been your favourite part of bringing Ready for This to our TV screens? The casting of the characters. Um, we, Whenever you cast a show, it's always difficult. And when you have specific requirements, it's really hard. In Dance Academy, it was very challenging because we needed to find great actors who are also great dancers because you can't fake either of those things. Yeah. And so that was a real real struggle. With um, Ready for This, we needed kids of a particular background and who were talented in particular things. You can't fake singing, or you can, but you know the audience is going to pick up if you lip syncing. So we needed to find a Torres Strait Islander girl who had an incredible voice and was a great 
actress. And so we thought that might be, you know, any of the roles might be, be tricky to find someone who's a great athlete um, and could believably play AFL or, or sprinting. So I was just so delighted that we found the actors that we did. Um, and for many of them, they were some of the first people we saw for that role and they were just right. Um, Majida Be- Beatty, who plays Ava, had never acted before on television, but we knew of her through um, appearing on a reality TV show yep. um, along with her sister. So we knew that she looked great and knew that she had an amazing voice. We got her into audition and we got her in a few times because she was so incredibly nervous. But it was actually those nerves that while she thought that might have been a problem, that's when we realised that she could play Ava. Yeah, finding the cast for the show and how fantastic they have been in realising their characters on screen has, has been the most satisfying part. I think Majida's just done a fantastic job and I know she was so excited when it came to air and she's had a really some really great feedback because she she commented to me during the filming that when she was growing up she never saw people that looked like her and she never saw teenage characters in the shows that she was watching ever that looked like her and how fantastic that would have been when she was growing up so she knows that that would have had a real impact for other kids of her background to, to see people who look like her. Yeah that's so great to hear. Even like Aaron who plays Levi he's going on to do some great work with Jasper Jones and yeah oh, no, that's, I can't wait to uh, see him in Jasper Jones. I can't wait as well and also Glitch. Yeah so he's done a heap of things so he's in the code and was fantastic in Glitch and now going on to Jasper Jones so I think uh, he's going to be a big superstar. Yeah so you're, you're pretty proud of him being a part of the oh, show. Oh yeah right and he's actually not an AFL player so for him to do all of the fantastic work he did with us and to really believe, believably look like he could play very proud of him. Can you give us any spoiler free hints about what we can expect from the first season of Ready for This? Well you can definitely expect some um, tumultuous love stories and somebody from uh, Levi's past comes back who he hasn't seen for a long time which really throws him and that's a really fantastic storyline that I love. It comes up about halfway through the through the series so I'm looking forward to that coming on air. And also Dylan's character really takes on a big transformation so he's come from Brisbane where he's from a reasonably well off family with his dad being a well known politician and being a fantastic violinist but it's actually not where his heart lies so he goes on a really interesting journey of change in this series yeah and with reese being the non-indigenous character yeah. of the cast was his character there straight away when you started creating the show or did he yeah develop- a- absolutely so we you know it's really important that we show that you know non-indigenous and indigenous um teenagers and, and anyone can can be great friends and that we didn't want it to to be exclusionary of anyone and also we just loved the idea of it's all about the family that they find mm. and for reese being i don't want to give things away for people who haven't seen the upcoming um actually i don't think it's been on it yeah, yes, it's great. <laughs> I've just series. had two episodes so far, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's even, yeah, in the next couple of episodes, we really get to see a lot more of Reese in his background, and it's just a little bit heartbreaking, and to, for, to find the family that he does is um, it's a great, great storyline. Yeah, that's good. And I just love that scene when he was being introduced by Lily after the competition. <laughs> it was yeah. such a funny scene. Yeah, yeah, no, it truly did. <laughs> he's trying so hard to do the right thing and not be racist in any way, and he doesn't know if he's offending or not. No, it's really gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much, Joanna. Really nice to talk to you, and I'm um, delighted that you're interested in the show and enjoying it. Thanks, Braden. Bye. In an article written for the Wheeler Centre on diversity and inaccurate representations of Indigenous peoples back in May, young adult author Amblin Quaymelina stated that there is enough among the Aboriginal publishers in Australia, IAD Press, Magabala Books, and Aboriginal Studies Press, to show the range of Indigenous voices across all genres. 
There are plenty of Indigenous writers having their books published by mainstream publishers, such as Walker Books, the publisher of Amberlin's The Tribe Trilogy. In the article, Amberlin states that, and I quote, Indigenous voices are speaking. They are just too often not being heard. End quote. A smaller press like Magabala cannot match the publicity that is being done by the larger mainstream publishers, in particular against international stories by more well-known writers. Therefore, Magabala's authors rely on great word of mouth, and I hope that those Australian book bloggers or booktubers listening lend their support to these local diverse voices. So I introduced Jane Harrison, who is a descendant of Mirawari people of New South Wales. She grew up in the Victorian Dandenongs with her mother and sister. Jane's career began as an advertising copywriter before becoming a playwright and novelist. Her best-known work is Stolen, about the Stolen Generation, which received critical acclaim touring locally and overseas. Her novel, Becoming Curly Lewis, was published by Magabala in June this year, and it won the State Library of Queensland 2014 Black and White Indigenous Writing Fellowship. Kirali Lewis came out in June from Magabala Books, and I thought it was wonderful and very insightful. But for readers who may have missed it when it came out, can you just explain what it is about? It's a story of a young Aboriginal girl, 18, who's been adopted into a white family and has a good experience with her white adoptive family. Goes to the university as a law student and starts to become, and she's quite conservative, which I thought was a nice sort of upending of stereotypes. And she starts to become a little bit more politically involved at university, meets some other Aboriginal people, a few things happen to her, and decides to seek out her birth mother and goes through that process. And when she does meet her birth mother, things are not what she expects. So uh, that's another period of adjustment. The point of view goes to the mothers and we go back in time to hear her background. And then eventually Kiralee does get to meet her father and that's the, the sort of Point of view back to Kiralee's at the end with a few twists along the way. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned the book being a split timeline taking place in both the 1960s with her mother and the 1980s. How did you write that and how challenging was it to faithfully write those eras? Yes, Kiralee's story is set in 1985 and I guess it becomes clear when you read that why it is set then. I think some of the values and mores of the time you know, wouldn't have fitted her story for those things to have happened in the present time. So I actually started writing this book 16 years ago. Wow. So it's a lot closer than 1985. Yeah. I started it. And I'd written about 50,000 words then and kind of picked it up over the years and had another little go at it and, and then eventually did decide to really have a red hot go and finish the book. But I did have to, you know, finishing the book last year, I did have to go back and make sure my research was very thorough, particularly about the 1985 technology. So much has changed. So all those pop culture references in the book, I had to make sure that um, I was talking about the right thing, that things hadn't, you know, the no mobile phones, all of that, the technology. She's running down the street looking for a phone box, for heaven's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Who uses phone boxes these days? No one. So you have a background as an award-winning playwright. So what was it about the story of becoming Kiralee Lewis that you thought was better suited to a novel, a YA novel, than the theatre? Yeah, well, look, you know, obviously I have got a background in writing for theatre, but I really wanted a book that was accessible. And theatre's not always accessible to everyone in every place, in rural areas and, you know, out of city areas. And a book, something that can be in a library or in a school curriculum, can be passed around. There's hopefully bookshops in every major cities. So I just wanted something that had contemporary, even though it was set in 85, but urban Aboriginal culture to be sort of in a popular medium such as a book. 
it's great that we're getting now Aboriginal stories on TV and you know in films and things like that. But I think um, there's still lots of room for these themes to be investigated through novels. Yeah, and do you have any plans to adapt it to the stage? I would actually, I actually see it as a three-part TV miniseries. Okay, so I yeah. think it'd be nice to have Kiralee's story, her mother Cherie's story, and then Charlie's story at the end. I think that'd work quite well. So, any uh, TV production houses out there who want to <laughs> come on board let's talk <laughs> and so that a big focus of the book is Kiralee connecting with her Corey heritage I wonder if you can speak a bit about what you hope readers get out of that aspect of the story I've written a play called Stolen which is about the stolen generations mm-hmm. and I'm going to investigate some different themes with this story um, particularly the story of someone who has a really great experience in their adoptive family but still needs to seek out, obviously, family, the birth family, biological family, and also to connect more to her culture. And for me, that connecting with culture, that's a journey I share as well. Even though I grew up knowing that I I was Aboriginal and my mum was Aboriginal, I felt sort of in my 20s and later that I kind of had to find out more about why I was so connected to my culture yes. and I think Kiralee also goes through that journey of not knowing where she fits in into the Aboriginal community trying to connect and uh, <laughs> and you know that and finding her place I suppose her identity which is a huge part of young adulthood in novels so her biological Aboriginal father Charlie Jackson is such an interesting inspirational character can you speak about him and if you were drawing on any real world inspirations Uh, there are quite a few real world people that i drew on for the character of charlie he's a very almost quite intimidating aboriginal activist i'm not going to name names because i've sort of been a bit of a bowbird and taken from different people's experiences and of course He's an imagined character as well. But I really wanted to sort of show, again, mixing up the stereotypes, even though he is quite confronting, I think the book shows that he's got real sense of heart mm-hmm. um, towards Kiralee. And, um, and yeah, I, I just love their relationship. And I'm hoping, actually, to do... I'm going to write a, a sequel to the book, and I hope to investigate more of Charlie's story in that as well, because I think he's such an intriguing, multi-layered person. And look, all of the characters are flawed in different ways, as we all are as human beings, speaking for myself. So, you know, he does have that kind of scary, big ideas, straight-talking sort of persona, but he also has a, a gentler side to him that I think comes out in the book. I think a lot of people who have, who have read your book would be very excited for that sequel to come out. Another big focus is on adoption. Kiralee having been adopted by by white parents and her biological mother, Cherie's reasons for putting her up for adoption in the 1960s. Can you speak a bit about telling this tale from both their points of view and any research you did into adoption? Yeah, well, I suppose um, a lot of the background research I did is uh, in writing the play Stolen, which is about the stolen generations. So I had sort of six years to work with a researcher on that and do my own research as well. And then I was also very fortunate that out of the Bringing Them Home report that came out quite a long time ago, 1987, I did uh, some, a lot of work on oral histories with the um, National Library in Canberra. Okay, yeah. So I drew on some of those experiences and also um, just people's experience that I got to know around the community about adoption. And I, I really wanted to show that other side of having a beautiful family, warm upbringing but it still doesn't in a way um, she still needs to feel whole by finding her biological family and I suppose that's you know quite a common story for 
people who've been adopted. Some choose to not seek out their biological family, and I fully understand that. And in fact, Kiralee's adopted sister has a bit of that kind of story in the book. But yeah, I just wanted to, I suppose, you know, mix up the stereotypes a little bit in terms of adoption and being adopted into a white family. Yeah. Something that all readers may get out of this book is an increased awareness of the various cooperatives that exist on university campuses, such as the Koori Advancement Centre that becomes very important to Kiralee. Can you speak a bit about the importance of such organisations in the story and in the real world too? Yeah. Well, I think in the real world, particularly, and I'm writing mainly, I'm writing about the Victorian Aboriginal community, there's been many community organisations that have been developed by Aboriginal people and sometimes in partnership with non-Aboriginal people that have really, you know, done so much to change the health services. Uh, yes, yes. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency link up all of those services to there to provide Aboriginal services providing support for Aboriginal people. And, you know, not everyone, again, wants to go through an Aboriginal service, but them being there, they're a place of cultural safety for people, for the Aboriginal community, and they've done so much for Aboriginal people in Victoria. So, again, I just wanted to sort of layer some of those historical events into the narrative, really. Yeah, and and I think it's for readers who aren't of Indigenous heritage, I think that it's very insightful and they can learn a lot from that sort of thing and and realise that there are these organisations out there helping Indigenous people. Um, What have been one of your favourite reactions or some of your favourite reactions? At the moment, I seem to have had a lot of feedback from older readers, I suppose, about the book. The young people I've spoken to, you know, have really enjoyed the story. They've related the characters. Some of them cried, so they've been really quite moved um, by the stories. I think that's great. And again, it's about getting four young Aboriginal kids to get their sort of stories in popular culture and out there and to make them natural, a natural part of our our books and literature. Yeah. How's your experience been with Magabala? Yeah, that's been a fantastic experience. So I was fortunate that the book won the Black and White Prize, which is out of the State Library in Queensland, and it went through an editorial process there. And then I went over to Magabala and I worked with the editors over an extended period of time to get the book out and... You know, I'm really happy with it. I think it looks beautiful. The colour's really beautiful and hopefully it pops on the on the shelves. Yeah. So I'm, um, you know, again, hoping that we can continue that relationship. They've got a great stable of writers and people like Jared Thomas yes. who they publish as well. So, yeah, it's great to be part of the Magabala family. At the moment I'm busy producing a Victorian Indigenous Literary Festival. Okay. I can flag that. Yeah. Or February next year, and that will cover a whole genre of different genres of storytelling, Aboriginal storytelling. So that's kind of my main focus at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's about chasing other writers other than myself. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm really promoting that heavily at the moment. Was there a website that people listening can go to? Yeah, it's called Black and Bright Victorian Indigenous Literary Festival, and it's on in February 19 to 21st next year. So we do have a website. It's um, slowly being populated as we get going with the festival. That's awesome. All right, so thank you so much for um, talking to me about your book. Pleasure, Brad. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Now I'm joined by Jared Thomas. Jared is an Indigenous author, playwright, poet, and academic. He grew up in Port Augusta on Nukunu country, and his mother's Aboriginal family came from Winton in Queensland. 
His first novel, Sweet Guy, published by IAD Press, was shortlisted for both the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the Festival Awards for Literature in South Australia. Jared was awarded the Kirill Dagun Indigenous Writing Fellowship in 2013 for his next novel, Calypso Summer, which came out in 2014, but from Magabala Books. And just recently, Calypso Summer had joined the 2015 International Youth Library White Raven list. Hello. Hey, Brayden. How you doing? Yeah, good, good. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you. Pleasure. So your latest YA novel was Calypso Summer. Can you give a little description about what readers can expect if they haven't read Calypso Summer yet? Okay, well, I guess the main thing is it's it's a very kind of character-driven story with a, a very engaging and, and uh, reportedly likeable character in Calypso. Carl gets called Calypso. He's in his early 20s and he was quite academic at school, quite scholarly, and he had dreams of working in sports retail. But pretty much due to his, his blackness, he's unable to secure work and he just kind of takes up smoking pot and playing Bob Marley songs on an old nylon, nylon string guitar. He's living with his mum. His mum also has Crusoe's uh, sister and her kids living there too. And so he's, re- he's really trying to make a break. He just wants to kind of get ahead in the world. And one of the ways to do that is he adopts a Rastafarian persona to get a bit kind of cultural cachet. Yeah, so it's, it's really, you know, an investigation of, of drug use primarily and, and also... You know, what things uh, can be absent in a, in a person's life and what happens to a person when they kind of start to obtain some of those things that are important to them. And sometimes I don't know what those important things are, but I think when people are confronted with some substance in their life, it kind of has this ability to change their outlook completely. Yeah, and, and you have an interesting background with your father being Aboriginal and Scottish and your mother Aboriginal and Irish, and you identify as Nukunu. Yeah, Nukunu. Nukunu. Yeah. Um, because you were raised in the Nukunu land and with the culture. Can you speak a bit about how your background shaped your writing and indeed how it inspired Calypso's story? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Both of my parents are of mixed heritage and I grew up in Port Augusta, which is, which is in Nukunu country. So my family still possess a lot of our traditional country and I guess in the next Hopefully in the next 12 months we'll have determination of our native title as well in the region. Mm. But we, we have over 4,500 hectares of our country, which is about the size of Adelaide City, including the parklands. So quite a lot of land. And yeah, I grew up in Port Augusta and about 20% of the population is Aboriginal. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a fair-skinned-looking person. So I guess growing up, I would hear... I'd hear non-Indigenous people just say the most kind of offensive things about Aboriginal people, just thinking I was like a, a regular as a kid, and that was completely acceptable. The other thing, that there, there wasn't much access to media when I was growing up there. Today we have NITV and, and numerous Aboriginal radio stations and things. There was, there was a real absence, and one of the things that I did watch was current affairs programs, and there was a real focus on apartheid in South Africa and you know following the plight of Nelson Mandela and other South Africans and I started to really think well apartheid is is really happening in my hometown and then as I yeah when I was a teenager I was playing in a a rock band at school it was an Aboriginal rock band and we played music by Coloured Stone, No Fixed Address so Aboriginal bands and bands like Midnight Oil 
and uh, artists such as Bob Marley. And a lot of that, a lot of that song was songs were highly political. And I guess that was a little the beginnings of my politicalization. And then speaking with my dad and my grandfathers about their experiences and and starting to really have an understanding of the institutionalization of my people and how people have been held down, you know, like and. Um, I just had to look around my hometown and none of my teachers were Aboriginal. There weren't Aboriginal people in the supermarket or at the mechanics or the butcher store. So a real absence. And yeah, I guess I started to question those things. So there was that kind of, yeah, questioning and interest, discussion with other family members, but also probably having a unique position where I had both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal family members. And knowing people to be essentially good, but knowing sometimes there was a bit of a, a naivety or, a, or an ignorance and an inability for people to have meaningful engagement with each other. And I always thought, well, if there was just meaning, meaningful engagement, there would be better opportunity for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to kind of take pleasure in each other's company and culture and, and, and all of those things. So that started to really drive my thinking. And then when I was... I was pretty young when I was at finish, finishing school. So I was, I think I was, yeah, I was, I was 16 in year 12. And I went to see a play called Funerals and Circuses by Roger Bennett, who's an Aboriginal playwright who was in, in our springs. And so I don't think my teachers actually knew what they were taking us to see. And when we were in the, in the queue to get into the theatre, uh, I was there with a couple of my Aboriginal mates, but mostly non-Aboriginal classmates, right? And these two Aboriginal men were trying to get into the theatre. And the, the, the security guard came up to him and said, fellas, what do you think you're doing? This is the theatre. The pub's up the road. I think we better move on. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, what's going on here? This is just like Port Augusta, you know? This is what we see, that type of discrimination, etc. So then he said, you know, come on, fellas, you've got to move on. They said, no, we're dressed respectfully, nice shoes, jacket, shirt. We're just going into the show. The bouncer said, come on, fellas, piss off down to the pub or else I'm going to just get out of here or else I'm going to call the cops. So then they pulled out their theatre tickets and they said, look, here's our tickets. We're going into the shop. There was a bit of a, a confrontation that was unfolding and the, the, the police were called and the police escorted these men away. And I was really angry and, and I was embarrassed. And there I was in front of my, my non-Aboriginal schoolmates and my teachers and there were all these kind of middle-class, non-Indigenous people. We went into the theatre and at the very early in the first act, those two men walked onto the stage, the two Aboriginal men that were escorted away from the queue. Yeah. Actually actors in the show. <laughs> right? And they just they just looked into the audience and they said, Now everyone that's here, you just happen to see a blatant case of racism, prejudice, discrimination. You chose to do nothing. Mm. Okay? And they said come on, we're going to take you around our town and we're going to show you the way it is. And it was Promenade Theatre. Paul Kelly, singer-songwriter, was in that show and felt, yeah, I just watched that show and it was so profound and I just thought, this is the first time I've seen non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people working together in a real, really positive and proactive way to, to address racism, right? And I, and I pretty much made a decision at that point. That's what I wanted to do with my writing. I wanted to address racism, but like that play, which was wonderfully engaging and complex, yeah, I wanted to talk about issues relating to Aboriginal people and, and more broadly working-class Australians. 
yeah, in, a, in an entertaining and engaging manner. So that's kind of early beginnings of my writing and my, my aspiration to, to, to write, um, firstly, theatre and then moving into fiction. Yeah, and I guess it, it, that all ties into the next question. All of your writing from Calypso Summer to your award-winning plays and your other YA novel, Sweet Guy, they all explore the power of belonging and culture. So is that something that you would always want to write about and explore? I'm working on a couple of different books at the moment, and I, I guess the common theme is belonging and culture is one of them, but it's also a disconnection. And, um, and at the moment, not all of my characters... That increasingly, I'm writing material where there's where there's an absence of Aboriginal characters in the text, or there's Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal characters. And while I'm like I'm writing one book at the moment, Winnebago, and Winnebago is about a, a 13-year-old Aboriginal kid that stows away in a Winnebago. There's a, a mother, non-Indigenous mother, and she's kind of taking her teenage daughter on this journey to try to reconnect with her daughter and to prep her to prep her for her Year 12 studies. And, yeah, so I'm looking at not just how Aboriginal people have been disconnected through colonisation, but more generally how people are, are disconnected from from each other and community and a sense of place and purpose through our political and, and, and economic framework. Yeah. A lot of uh, Calypso Summer is about Calypso's cultural identity, but it also explores ideas of masculinity in modern Australia, especially in his cousin Run. Can you speak a bit about why this was so important for you to touch on and, and why you think there are still such rigid lines for young men? Um, well, when I, when I was researching for Calypso Summer, I was looking at criminality amongst young young people and young men in particular. Yeah, a lot of the research pointed to a connection between masculinity and and criminality. So saying that predominantly in Australian masculinity is demonstrated through control of vehicles and machinery. Okay, so from a very young age, if you're you can ride a scooter or a skateboard or a BMX bike. Yeah, or playing sport as well, like other Physicality, so playing basketball or footy or soccer, that gives you a type of identity, a masculine identity. And then as you move on through, then it's motorbikes and it's it's cars and it's power tools, trucks, tractors, etc. Now, when you're a kind of a person that doesn't have access to money, but masculinity is demonstrated through, you know, the control of vehicles. You just go and steal a vehicle to mark your masculinity, okay? So, or masculinity through physicality. So then it becomes through fighting, etc. So those kind of markers, if you partake in that as a poor person, so fighting or stealing, that's going to land you in jail. Mm. So I kind of wanted to talk about that and how do you demonstrate your masculinity outside of the bounds of those things. The other thing with, you know, identity and masculinity in Australia is, Australia is a country of immigrants and often, you know, a lot of people notice this. If you get people that are immigrants, they might kind of be in the country for 20 or 30 years, but they're still kind of acting like they would have in their home country 20 years ago. Yeah. So there's a kind of cultural lag in conservatism. And I think because it is a country of immigrants and then there's Aboriginal people colonised, but we're all trying to fit in. There's so many people trying to fit in. So there's a real conservative and there's this strong kind of, a strong inverted commas norm that is projected. I guess somewhere in, in Calypso Summer, 
I wanted to really show Ron's plight because Ron, he doesn't have the good fortune that Calypso has. He's still wanting to wheel and deal in drugs and to steal things and and that's how he tries to get on. He has a code and that's what he lives by and he hasn't yet found out how to break into the world of employment, a career. These things seem so foreign to him but what is attainable is getting high and enjoyment through that type of lifestyle. Yeah. At Reading Matters this year, you said race doesn't exist. Racism does. I wonder if you can talk a bit about how you see the state of diverse books in Australian publishing, both YA and adult, and where you'd like to see improvements. Look, I think... I think things things haven't been so good, but things things are are improving. I still think there's a long way to go. It's very hard for yeah, I guess people of culturally diverse backgrounds and Aboriginal people when most of the publishing houses are very they're very mainstream. Yeah. So with Aboriginal Australia, we have Magabala and, and IAD Press that are you know our two key. Aboriginal publishing houses, you have IATSIS as well, that does kind of more non-fiction, but it's limited in terms of, those publishers are doing great work, but it's limited. And some of us do, we do get traction with mainstream publishers, and it's interesting that most of the award-winning adult fiction in the last kind of 10 to 15 years has either been written by Aboriginal people or about Aboriginal subject matter. So that, so it's kind of changing. I think there is a real interest and a hunger. And, and of course, with the advent of uh, Aboriginal studies in, in undergraduate programs across the country, like people are starting to, yeah, in Aboriginal studies at school and even things like the, you know, Dreamtime at the G, the AFL and recognition of retired returned servicemen and with the Anzacs and these types of very mainstream things are meaning that readers really want to find out more of the story. And, you know, I think if you look at Aboriginal stories and stories from people of diverse backgrounds, you know, they're, they're stories of real resilience and triumph and strength and love and hope and that they're just incredible stories because you know people have lived through adversity that tension conflict is what makes good stories so yeah i think we we have a long way to go but increasingly aboriginal and people of diverse backgrounds are starting to enter that space now have you had a lot of responses from young indigenous kids towards clips of summer yeah i've had quite yeah i have had quite a bit and you know there's I've heard of kids who's who they get their parents to read it to them, like um, they just want to read it over and over, um, yeah. kind of thing. And they they just yeah, they love the character. They kind of people say, I, I know this character. You know, we have this. Many of us have that type of character in their in their family, or at least in the community. Bob Marley, Rastafarianism's really folk, um, featured in Calypso Summer, and you know he still has Bob's still really really respected within Aboriginal community and the Torres Strait Island community etc so yeah I'm really pleased that that yeah younger people are reading not just Calypso but Dallas Davis the scientists and the city kids and and sweet guy and um done a bit of work in in prisons and uh men from 18 up to 60 plus and sometimes with those younger men one of the one of the best things for me as an author is when they go this is the first book that I've ever read from beginning to end, and, and I love it. I want to read more, okay? So talking, talking, going back to growing up in Port Augusta, I wasn't an avid reader, and it was probably because I wasn't provided 
books that I could see myself in, right? So, and particularly when I went to university and I'm, I'm still reading the English canon. And so when I, when I started to be introduced more to Aboriginal literature and Caribbean and, and African rich literature that really resonated with me, I thought, well, well, here I am. I'm, I'm going to take off now because I had this real, yeah, this, it helped me to develop that passion. So somehow I hope when I'm writing stories that are for, yeah, that they're speaking to, to Aboriginal community, yeah, it's just good to hear that, that kind of feedback that people want to, read the material and they enjoy it yeah now so you got a new novel coming out in 2016 yeah can you tell us a bit about that and anything else that you may be working on I th- yeah the, the book that's being released is next year is songs that sound like blood so songs that sound like blood follows roxy roxy may redding and she's a she's a kid that's growing up in a regional australian town and she wants to go study music at the center of aboriginal studies and music which is actually a, a program here in adelaide at, at adelaide university and it's yeah, amongst Aboriginal people, it's a really famous music program. So a lot of really great artists have come through that particular program. So Roxy, she doesn't know how she's going to leave her hometown. Her dad's just started seeing this new girlfriend that is kind of a lot younger than, than him. And her auntie is has separated from her uncle and they have a young child. And Roxy always has to look after the, the young couple child the mum's gone off drinking people don't want to leave her to leave the town there's a lot of jealousy amongst her peers she's dealing with racism at school so she goes that she does go to adelaide and it's about how she survives and how she deals with the, the pressures of family and the other thing is is that she has her first relationship and her, her first relationship is with a young marty pakia um woman yeah, so it's, so it looks at it looks at sexuality as well, and again, conservatism around relationships and expectations and, and acceptability. You know, so yeah, so I'm I'm kind of I'm really excited about that book because I think it is it's quite challenging, and really I think as a, as a writer, it's really forcing me to to develop and improve what I'm putting out. I'm I'm trying to you know I'm really conscious of staying true to the characters. Uh, in the writing of it, there's been a lot of discussions with with people that are, have lived and are living these experiences. How has Maggie Bella's response been to that novel? Yeah, I mean, it's been entirely positive. They they wanted me to to write another book after the release of Calypso Summer. When Calypso Summer was released, within a month, it went like in the top ten best books on iTunes and and all of that. Like it's it's had quite a bit of traction, and there's there's interest in it for a kind of television screen project yeah so television film project you know like I, I felt great what am what am I going to write and essentially I wanted to write a book that made a statement that people should be able to pursue their dreams independent of their socioeconomic background yeah okay and then I thought this young woman she's quite interesting she's attractive she's a great musician of course someone's going to be attracted to her and I thought am I going to do another boy stalks girl gets girl type of book and I went no no, she's gonna she's gonna have a, a woman lover, you know, and so that's kind of so I think Magabella they really love it because I think they think that I'm pushing into new territory. There's not a lot of Aboriginal people in this country writing YA, and I think I'm also kind of turning the the, the focus on ourselves as well. So some of the responses to things within the Aboriginal community, rather than looking at how non-Indigenous Australia responds to us. 
how do how do we treat each other? So that's um yeah, no, I only spoke to my publisher this morning and they're just really, really happy with the direction that the works works taking. Yeah, I look forward to reading that one. Thanks yep. so much for talking to me. Yep, cheers. All right, okay. thanks, Jared. See ya. That leaves us at the end of the third episode. I hope you enjoyed it and leave a bit more informed about the beauty within Indigenous stories. I will leave the URL for the Amblin's Willow Centre article on the WordPress post. A quick note also, the WordPress is now at lovelesweapodcast.wordpress.com as the Lovelesweap committee begins work on a central website resource to arrive in 2016. I give a heap of thanks to Danielle Binks for helping me in contacting the guests of this episode. So until next time, happy reading. And remember, read diversely.